0: Hi, this is Ben Lola, back to the Bible Canada. We've been looking at Romans chapter 3 this week, and today we want to continue with the greatest message of all in Dr. Newfeld's series called The Heart of the Gospel. This powerful lesson about the depth and richness of the gospel of Jesus Christ is one that is as significant today as ever. So let's open our Bibles to Romans chapter 3, verses 21 to 25, and go back to the Bible with Dr. John Newfeld.
1: I want you to imagine that you're a violent criminal, perhaps even someone who's killed a child. You've gone through the trial and at the beginning you're relatively hopeful that you could get off until the Crown brought in evidence that was so strong that you knew they had you and you had no hope and they came in with a verdict. You're guilty. You're filled with remorse. Suddenly you see clearly what you've done. How could you ever have done such a thing? You sense the anger against you in the courtroom. Surely you are doomed. But then comes the moment when the sentence is about to be passed down, and the judge says, I've chosen rather than to condemn you, to pardon you. Your crimes are forgiven. Go and be free. Can you imagine the relief that you'd feel? How would you think about the judge? Wouldn't you be thankful and want to hug him and tell him that you thought he was the greatest? See, that picture of a forgiven criminal is the picture that many of us carry in our own heads when we think of our salvation. God has forgiven us our great crimes, and we are free. But let me now replay that scene from another vantage point. Imagine you're the parent of the child who was killed. And all through the trial, you've heard the Crown bring in the evidence that was overwhelming and persuasive. You can see that the criminal has no hope. And then comes the verdict. He's guilty. And you feel relieved. Justice is about to be served. And then comes the moment when the sentence is about to be passed down and the judge tells the man who has murdered your precious child, the light of your eyes, he says, I've chosen rather than to condemn you, to pardon you. Your crimes are forgiven, go free. Can you imagine your anger? How would you think about the judge? Wouldn't you want to condemn the judge? Wouldn't you want to tell him that he's the worst judge in the world and that his courtroom has shown contempt for the life of your child? It makes a mockery of right and wrong, and a mockery of justice, and a mockery of righteousness. That picture, the picture of an offended party, is the picture that many of us should carry around in our heads as we think about our salvation. How can salvation even be considered when it is God who is offended? though many of us have never considered it. The greatest, most far-reaching question is this. How can God forgive our sins and let us go to heaven and still be the righteous God? Is he not condemning himself and his character if he allows sins to be overlooked? You know, if you've been following my long series through Romans, through three and a half chapters, hearing God declare us sinners and under the wrath of God, it would seem that there is no answer to our dilemma. If we are truly as bad as God says we are, and if, as we have said before, it's about God and not about us, and if God is righteous and is concerned for His reputation, then God has no choice but to condemn every single person to the punishment that we all so rightfully deserve. Let's carry on with our courtroom theme. You and I are the defendants in God's courtroom. The object of our crimes, the offended party, that's God. The crown prosecuting attorney, The one who in the last three and a half chapters has brought in the charges against us is God. The jury who will determine our guilt or our innocence is God. The judge who determines the rules of evidence is God. And if you should protest by saying, well, that's not fair. Who does God think he is? He will answer, well, as a matter of fact, I think I'm God. And only God can have such a trial for he is, yes, he's God. And if you understand that, you should understand when it comes to the bar of God's justice, you and I have no hope of going to heaven. But just when the landscape looks so bleak and so dark and so hopeless, suddenly in Romans 3.21, two words, but now, words that Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones called the most wonderful words in the entire Bible come into view. And these next 11 verses in Romans are the 11 verses that are the heart of the gospel. They tell us the only way that anyone can ever get on with a righteous God. They tell us how to be saved, how to have our sins forgiven. They tell us how to get to heaven. Today, we're going to consider the first six verses of this section in the Bible. Dr. Leon Morris said of this paragraph that we are about to read, he says, It's possibly the most single most important paragraph ever written in the history of the human race. Wow. I wonder if I've gotten your attention. So let's read this amazing paragraph from Romans 3, 21 to 26. This was to show God's righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Now, I know that some of us will find this to be a very difficult Bible passage to understand, but if we walk through this passage slowly and explain all the words that have been used in it, I hope you're going to agree that these are the most wonderful words that you can hear. Let's start at the beginning. God has great news for hell-bound guilty sinners. Great news. Listen up. The best conceivable news that you can hear. Indeed, that good news can be broken down into three pieces of good news. And here's the first bit of really good news. God has found a way to reveal his righteous character apart from the law. If you've paid attention, you'll know that God is not giving up on his righteousness or his glory. The universe exists as a showcase of his glory, of his wisdom, of his eternal power, of his righteousness. Not even our need for forgiveness will take God off of his game. But God found a way to reveal his splendor, especially his righteousness apart from the law. Now, if you're an ancient Jew reading this paragraph, you'd furrow your eyebrows and wonder how this was possible at all. After all, God declared he is righteous when he gave the Ten Commandments at Mount Sinai. It was there that God began to declare what was right and what was wrong. His laws are perfect and all his ways are just. By making the law and insisting on the law, God showed himself to be the God who does what is right all the time justice mark his ways. It is good to know God will never be compromised like a politician just when he sees it advantageous. God always does what is right. But as we have seen, that may be wonderful and glorious, but that's also where our problems begin. God is righteous, and we're not. And righteousness demands justice for lawbreakers, and that is who all of us are. And so, to hear that God has found a way to declare his righteousness apart from the law, well, that's the greatest bit of news that lawbreaking sinners could have. And that leads to our second piece of great news. The law and the prophets described that this would happen. That is, the sacrifices in the temple— And the words of the prophets indicated that something had to be done about human unrighteousness. They told us of a concept. The Hebrew word is Chesed, the loving kindness of God. God's love of covenant in which he would enter into a relationship with sinners and take all of our sins away. The entire Old Testament anticipates this. And now here's a third bit of great news. Anyone can receive God's righteousness from God as a gift through faith. God is about to show us something. Not only does God demonstrate that he is the righteous God in the cross, but he also credits righteousness to the account of anyone who believes. Look at it this way. Let's pretend for a moment that you're constantly broke. And some of you are saying, well, you know, I don't need to pretend I am constantly broke. Okay, so you don't have to pretend. So this illustration works very well for you. Now, imagine you went to the bank on Monday morning to find out if you were in overdraft or if you still had 30 bucks left in your account, and then the bank teller tells you, Sir or ma'am, you have unlimited funds in your account. Well, what would you do with that? As a matter of fact, all who have faith in Jesus Christ have been given the unlimited benefits of heaven. That will include forgiveness, access to the Father in prayer, in which he answers our prayers Every time we ask, the promise of heaven, the promise of a new quality of life that death can't destroy, and more, an official declaration from God that you have been declared righteous. God treats you and rewards you as if you had the perfection of Christ Himself. And all that is given to you as a gift. And you might ask, well, yeah, but how is that gift given? And the answer is by faith. That is, you have come to believe or you've come to put your entire confidence and trust in what Christ did on the cross. And because of what you see in the cross, you've surrendered your life and your future. And you're all in confidence that what Christ has accomplished on your behalf, well, that's good enough. See, it's that confidence— Or I've also used the word faith, faith and confidence. I'm using them in the same way, because everything is directed at God. We have faith in God, we're confident in God. And when we are, that's the good news. God reckons this as righteousness. When we come back, here's what we're gonna see. We're gonna see why this seemingly impossible bit of good news is in fact,
0: true news. In Romans chapter three, 21 to 26, we read some of the most profound verses ever written in the history of the human race. While the God of the universe could have let sinful humanity pay the full penalty of their sins, He chose instead to redeem us by offering up His own Son in our place, all the while without compromising His own perfect righteousness. What a gift. This is beyond what our finite minds can truly comprehend. After the break, Dr. Newfeld will shed some more insight on just how deep and rich is the good news that Paul has revealed in these verses. Thanks for listening. Did you know that today North America's millennials are becoming increasingly detached from God's Word? An estimated 77% read their Bibles less than three times a week or not at all. While this sobering statistic sounds bleak. We have an unprecedented opportunity to reach these young people with the truth of God's Word in ways that are relevant to them. And that's exactly what our mobile app, In Doubt, is doing, bringing God's voice to the lives of youth and young adults. To find out more, visit indoubt.ca or download the app at the Apple or Google Play Store. But for now, let's wrap up our program on Romans with Dr. John Neufeld.
1: We began by talking about the good news God has for undeserving sinners. But how can news like that be true? How can God be righteous and do something so amazingly merciful? Well, here now is the answer. We want to look at what Jesus accomplished on the cross. Let's read verse 23 again. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Paul acknowledges everything he has taught up till now. Sin is pervasive. It's universal. It's the explanation for why we are the rebels we are. Whatever Jesus did does not hide the enormity of our sin and does not seek to hide the fact that God is righteous and we are not. Now to verse 24a, and are justified by his grace as a gift. Stop again. Let me explain this huge biblical word, justification. Imagine you have two kids, Johnny and Susie. They're young and uh, you're in the house, but you have some work to do in the backyard. So you look at them and you say, Johnny and Susie, I'm in the backyard and while I'm back there, don't you dare take any of the chocolate chip cookies out of that cookie jar. And you come in later, and the jar's open, and it's empty. Cookie crumbs are everywhere. And what makes matters worse? Susie comes out. She has chocolate smudges all over her face. And you face her squarely, and you say, Susie, didn't I tell you not to take the cookies? And she starts crying, and then through her tears and sobbing and halting speech, she said she wasn't going to take any. But Johnny, he ate one. And then he gave her one, and then gave her another. And then through her sobs, she says... If it hadn't been for Johnny, I wouldn't have eaten even one. Now, what's Susie doing? Well, she's justifying herself. Now, when you trust in Christ and you stand before God and he says, I told you not to break my law, I was clear. I even warned you not to do so. What do you say in response to this violation of my righteousness? And then all true believers will turn and point to Jesus' bloody cross, his nail-scarred hands and his feet, his suffering. And we're going to cry out in triumph and say, that, that justifies me. And that's the glory of the cross. So to reinforce this, here's another illustration. I wonder if you've ever had someone say to you, what's your excuse? To say we are justified by his blood is to say we are excused by his blood. But how can that be true? Here now, Paul gives an amazing answer. On the cross, Jesus became our Redeemer. Listen again to Romans three twenty-four, And are justified by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Now, this word redemption comes from the world of slavery. In the ancient world, a slave could be redeemed from slavery by paying a price. Perhaps the slave was in slavery to pay off a debt, and then in mercy, a benefactor would come along and then pay the debt in full, and thus the slave would go free. And here's what Paul says. Christ's death on the cross is a payment in full for the debt you have accrued against God. His death satisfies the righteous demands of justice. So, on the cross, Jesus became our Redeemer. Furthermore, on the cross, Jesus fulfilled the plan of God. Look closely at the first four words in verse 25, whom God put forward. Another way of saying that is that God put Jesus forward by his set design or by his eternal purpose. In other words, the cross was not a last-minute fix for the problem of sin. 1 Peter 1.20 says of Jesus, he was foreknown before the foundation of the world. God created this world with the cross in mind. He created this world to externally demonstrate his splendor, his majesty, or his glory, and his righteousness. And the cross is the ultimate demonstration of the glory of God. God designed this world in order to set a cross as the centerpiece of all of history, to divide all time this way. And by the central placing of the cross in the middle of God's works, God demonstrates his righteousness. He demonstrates that he does what is right. But still, how does the cross declare the righteousness of God? Well, in verse 25, we read whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. Now, there's a mouthful, and the word here is propitiation. Put quite simply, this is an old English word, and well, there is no modern English equivalent for this word. So, we are just going to have to learn what it means. What Paul is saying here is that he's comparing the cross to the Old Testament Ark of the Covenant. The Old Testament mandated that once each year, Israel was to celebrate the Day of Atonement. On that day, they as a people were called to confess their sins. An animal was sacrificed. Its blood was placed in a bowl. And then on that one day alone, the high priest would enter into the most holy place of the temple with a bowl of blood. And then he'd sprinkle that blood onto the center of the ark. That was called the mercy seat. Without the blood, that seat would be a seat of judgment, but the blood would be spilled to take away the righteous anger of God for our sins. So when Paul uses the word propitiation, he's telling us what Jesus accomplished on the cross. Not only was he our redeemer and the one who fulfilled the eternal plan of God, but he's more than that. What Paul is saying is that on the cross, Jesus became our wrath-removing bloody sacrifice. He became our sin-bearer. Jesus, the only sinless and righteous human being in history, Jesus, the perfect Lamb of God, took the sins of all the world on himself and then as a sin bearer, he carried away every murder, every rape, every case of adultery, every act of greed, every theft, every denial of God, every act of insubordination and hatred of the Creator, every act of pride and deceit, everything done in the past and in the future. And then, representing our sin, suffered wrath under the hand of the Father, who poured out his infinite anger on him and put him to death on our behalf. See, I'm reminded of the amazing words of an old hymn. The author remains anonymous, but the words so wonderfully express in poetry these words of Paul. Maybe you know the hymn. What wondrous love is this, O my soul, O my soul. What wondrous love is this, O my soul. What wondrous love is this that caused the Lord of bliss to bear the dreadful curse for my soul, for my soul, to bear the dreadful curse for my soul. And then another verse says, when I was sinking down, sinking down, sinking down. When I was sinking down, sinking down. When I was sinking down beneath God's righteous frown. Christ laid aside his crown for my soul, for my soul. Christ laid aside his crown for my soul. And that, my friends, is the gospel. That's the good news. That's the most profound truth the human race has ever been given. The greatest danger that we as individuals will ever face is if we forget this. If any church no longer preaches this, she has denied the cross and left nothing over but to allow her followers to face the righteous God without any justification. That's why the enemy of our soul will rage against this message so that it will be not shared at all. For if this message is forgotten, there is no hope. But where this message is remembered— There is peace with God. There is justification for our sins. There is regeneration or the transformation of human lives. Everything, indeed everything, rests on this. And that's why Paul ends verse 25 by saying, this is to be received by faith. All that's required of you is to say, I believe. Indeed, I believe so deeply that I throw away every other confidence I might have had in my own goodness, in my own religious duties, in my own righteous acts, in my own anything. And I have traded all of that my only confidence I have. I reserve for the cross of Jesus Christ. I know there are some who will say, but I've been a Christian for years and I thought it had to do with doing the right things. See if that's what your confidence has been up till now, throw it away, throw it away. Put it all in the cross of Jesus Christ. For in that cross alone, we will find peace with God.
0: John, thanks so much for sharing today. What an incredible passage to study. What great promise there is in that passage. And it makes me have to ask you, you know, John, could you pray over this passage with us and the people that are listening today?
1: Ben, yeah, it's such an important thing to do. In fact, I'm going to ask those who are listening, if if you're in a car, uh, you don't want to close your eyes, but you'll want to pray this prayer. Heavenly Father, I know that I have been trusting in everything else but your cross alone. And today I renounce all trust I have in anything else. I recognize that there's not one thing that I can do to earn or to merit that which you offer me, eternal life. But I believe that the cross merits it for me. I trust in that. Oh, Lord God, I renounce my own works, my own deeds, but I trust in you. I trust in you alone. Oh, Lord Jesus, come and make your word known to me. Make the cross the most significant thing that's ever happened. In Jesus' name, I pray. Amen.
0: Life-changing is a word I would use to describe these profound verses in Romans chapter 3. And I hope that this teaching has encouraged and challenged you today. I'm convinced that in a world where the good news is being rejected more and more, and many of our churches have succumbed to preaching a diluted message, Paul's proclamation of the true gospel is indeed the only one that is worth sharing. It is the only source of hope and life for humanity. Let's never forget that. Well, I hope you'll join us again next week as we go into the final part of Dr. Newfeld's series on Romans, the heart of the gospel. You know, many Christians only dream of being able to visit the land which is the birthplace of Christianity. If you or someone you know has ever wanted to walk where Jesus walked and experience the trip of a lifetime, then look no further than Back to the Bible, Canada's Israel experience happening October 30th to November 9th. On this exciting tour, you'll join Dr. Newfelt, Phil Calloway from Laugh Again, special musical guests, the Weebs, and much more. You'll be immersed in the sights and sounds of this beautiful country, including visiting unique locations such as the Jordan River, the Garden of Gethsemane, sailing the Sea of Galilee, and worshipping at the Garden Tomb. There is limited space available, so don't miss this incredible opportunity. To find out more, just visit us at backtothebible.ca or give us a call today at 1-800-663-2425. Back to the Bible Canada,
1: leading you forward in your walk with Jesus every day.